You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Drake Rayfeld. Drake is the CEO of Demeanor, a platform that helps social influencers create and sell products to their fans. Drake, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, excited we get to do this. It's always fun to meet another entrepreneur who's downtown. <laughs> yeah, right? downtown LA. Long LA, that's for sure. For sure. Very good. So I want to start by talking about how you found your way into the digital media space. Okay, yeah. So I started my career back at Snapchat, earlier days, not you know, not super early, but uh, I was doing a lot of research engineering, computer vision, machine learning, mostly with some pretty cool mobile computer vision applications. And so through that, I got exposed to a lot of the just creator ecosystem. And then about a year and a half, two years after I started there, a good friend of mine, Tiffany Zong, introduced me to Jake Paul and Team 10 as they were looking for a head of engineering. So I ended up leaving my job at Snapchat and ran engineering at Team 10. And so what that means is digital products that aren't media. So that's apps, games, websites, all were under my team. And for some background on how Team 10 works, it's run a little bit like an agency or even management firm where you have 5, 10, sometimes 15 influencers signed at any time. And so if they wanted to have a mobile game or something like that, I'd help them out. It was great to bring a lot of those resources in-house to, you know, diversify the revenue streams. Yeah, very cool. Well, I want to hear more about the Snapchat days in Team 10, but I thought we'd actually zoom back even further than that. And uh, you launched your first business, Event Simply, (laughs) in 2014, which helped schools manage event ticket sales. What inspired you to start the company? Yeah, that was uh, right at the end of my um, high school days. I'm dating myself a little bit, I guess, as young. So I just saw inefficiencies and honestly, borderline fraud and, and stuff happening with ticket sales in schools in general. And so I taught myself how to code by building an online system for this. And so pretty basic point of sale system for for schools. And so that was a crazy experience selling to public institutions. The bureaucracy and red tape around public schools is ridiculous. But yeah, we processed a million, a few million dollars in GMB over the last few years. And it's pretty much in the background for me right now as I focus on and the creator landscape. But. That's great. So that business still exists? Is, is there someone running it or it's just kind of yeah, on autopilot? it's pretty on auto, autopilot, which yeah. is fun. Very cool. So you taught yourself how to code yep. and then you went to USC and I anticipate, yep. did you go there for computer science? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's a, it's a dual program, computer science and business. And they were also pretty, you know, helpful and accommodating for me to go and do my Snapchat work and stuff like that alongside. So I was full-time at Snapchat doing some night classes, early morning classes at, at USC. And did, That's great. Just hardly, but the skin of my teeth finished up. So. <laughs> How did the Snapchat opportunity come about? How did you get involved there? Yeah, it was actually, it was a friend of mine. He was working in a data position at Snapchat. And so I interviewed and applied through him. And then I was in a, a data management position for about two weeks and then kind of coded away my job while I was there. And so at that time they were you know, early Snapchat you were able to kind of forge your own path, uh, which was pretty cool. 
showed them I could code and, and started working on the machine learning side of things. And so after Snap, as you mentioned, you go to mm-hmm. Team 10 and you're helping the various creators that are part of the, the community or the label with the projects that they wanted to work on, right? right? And a lot of those, it sounds like were related to alternative forms of monetization. Right, yeah. right. So very frequently it would be mobile games and apps. What also kind of fell under my umbrella though was on the business side of things, some data analytics, some... Uh, even some data around marketing, any ways to kind of bring in all those different properties we have under one umbrella and run it a little bit more like a tech company instead of these ad hoc projects. That was, I think, a very important part of my my job. But yeah, a lot of these projects were, you know, a mobile racing game for Chad Tepper or uh, we did an AR snowball fight game for Jake. And so some pretty cool things in the mobile space. And how did they perform? Did pretty well. Not too many specifics I can speak on, but it was like, it was a lot of fun. I think the the most interesting part about working there was we were a small team, pretty scrappy startup feel, but because you're working with these creators, you instantly ship to millions of people. And so it's this crazy iterative cycle where you can move super quickly and get feedback and hear how, you know, terrible your ideas might have been or how good they are. And I was fortunate to be able to hone my product skills in that environment because we had such audience for me to... Yeah, that's so interesting when you have a huge distribution baked in, right? You can launch a product, but then I guess the challenge becomes retention, right? Right. So how do you benchmark if it's doing well and in the, you know, the quick pace of the social media landscape, ensure that a product's going to stick around, not just get this huge spike in popularity and then people move on to the next thing that the influencer does or, you know, to a new talent, something like that. How do you ensure that it's sticky? It really comes down to building these mobile experiences that align with their content plans as well. And so all of those creators know generally what they're going to be promoting in the next two, three, four months. And so you can build those into the game as whether it's Easter eggs and people realize it later and they keep coming back or actually plan it out to have updates in that, in that regard. And as long as these games and apps and mobile experiences are on brand with the influencer, it's, it's, we, we saw some good retention just because, you know, it's, it's core to what the, the influencer is doing. What do you think of the Team 10 business model, right? The, I think the whole philosophy is this is mm-hmm. by creators, for creators, yep. this idea that a lot of influencers working together can cross-promote uh, yeah. their audience, can cross-promote these types of products that you're launching. So that was kind of the, the original vision. And in many ways, perhaps it's been successful. I, I haven't yeah. looked at it too closely. But I think... Team 10 has become a bit notorious as well, right? There's been some bad press around Jake Paul, or there's been some controversy around who's in Team 10 and leadership changes and things like that. What was your take on all of those elements when you were involved there? I think the business model of incubating talent in-house is super powerful. You see some other players in the space doing the same thing, and... I think that model is, is important, and I think that'll live on. I always had a really great experience there. Jake and I have a good relationship, and I was able to work on some awesome things and, and build for these creators who were my friends. I think there is some controversy, of course, on the internet, and he's that brand has kind of become a scapegoat or target for a lot of the, those types of comments, and I'm not sure it's necessarily accurate. I, I don't know, the, the Shane Dawson documentary, not to bring up the, <laughs> the big, but really did shed light into the inner workings of the organization and I think made the public understand a little bit more how things operate on the inside and 
that's been helpful for me to explain my experience too because there's you know seven hours of footage online yeah, <laughs> that true. explain it so uh yeah no it's i think it's a powerful business model that's here to say very cool yeah. good and uh speaking of business models so you saw the power and the opportunity of yeah. helping influencers build products and kind of create these things right that bring their dreams to life and then monetize that through their built-in fan base yeah. and that's kind of it seems like the inspiration behind demeanor what you're focused on today tell right. us a little bit more about that motivation yeah i i think that influencers and, and creators in general while it's not 15 minutes they do have their proverbial 15 minutes of fame taking as soon as they reach you know a million two million followers and so while you're in that space it's all about taking advantage of it to build something that outlasts your spike in in fame or or uh, you know engagement while there are exceptions that creators have been able to build fan bases and, and audiences that last a quite a long time, I think it's important to build products and brands that outlive the creator's name. And so I'm trying to help uh, creators kind of realize that potential in, in building businesses, not just selling merch, but building businesses that can really last a long time. And so the holy grail here, right, is Kylie Cosmetics or, or you get into even like Zach King and his team have done a really good job of building products that do well, not only business-wise, but in society and in culture, they, they mean a lot to people. And so I'm, I'm trying to unlock that for creators who are good at ideas and good at promotion, and we help with all the kind of stuff in the middle. I guess maybe some background on what we do specifically might be helpful. But there are, say, 10 phases of building a product. You go from idea to finding a designer to manufacturer to fulfillment to shipping. We've kind of built a platform around all those things in the middle between idea and promotion. So we have our fulfillment partners and a marketplace of designers who can come and, and give you a proposal on whatever your product might be. And so we've kind of automated a lot of the hard parts to give creators their vision and empower them to sell their own you know, identity over the long term. Very cool. And you talk about building businesses based on influencers. Yeah. The quintessential example to me seems to be Ipsy by Michelle right, Fon, right? right? So if that's kind of the aspirational goal, helping creators have this longevity past right. their, you know, their personality-driven fame through social media, what are kind of the tenets about building a business like that? And how do you scale that, essentially, right? I think, you, you know, each of these businesses probably takes time to nurture and develop and test right. and learn and grow. How do you make sure that you're doing that across a lot of creators at scale? Yeah, I think you have to start with a product that, both fits really well with your audience, but isn't saturated in the market of creator products. That's a little bit confusing. An example I use is every creator already has merch. You can go get a hoodie from any creator. And instead, you need something unique. If you're a beauty influencer, it might be even outside of just pure makeup kits. It might be you know, starting to do brushes and beauty blenders and, and things that kind of live in the space, but they're a little bit unique to the landscape. And so that's kind of your foothold, your cornerstone to building something bigger and better. And so just starting there and giving creators the resources to develop the next product line in that collection, that's where we focus. And so we don't do too much of the actual business management side. We leave that to their teams. We just take the logistic nightmare out of it. What are some of the challenges about working with creators? Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. Creators have a lot of really awesome wild ideas. And so that gives us a big challenge of going and making it actually happen, which is a really fun challenge, you know, calling up suppliers and being like, can you make me this random thing that you've never heard of? And I think kind of balancing the, the big vision with audience potential 
and also just the, the logistics of finding those types of things. That's what we've gotten pretty good at, and it's been a lot of fun figuring that out. So most of our suppliers are here in L.A. Uh, we try to find people. I mean, we're, we're located down in South L.A., so a lot of you know textile and fabric and, and screen printers and all that kind of stuff around us manufacturing. And so it's been, it's been a lot of fun walking into those buildings and finding partners who we can contribute back to this L.A. ecosystem and also, you know, make a make a pretty big impact on the audience as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You've been kind of a big part in a lot of different pillars of the L.A. startup ecosystem, right? I mean, you went to yeah. one of the major universities, which is a pretty active entrepreneurship program. Yeah. You're involved at Snapchat, which is arguably one of the most <laughs> successful L.A. tech startups of all time. Yeah. You've participated in, uh, in YC. So why build a business in L.A.? Why is this community so important to you? I really appreciate the mix between the media and tech landscape. I guess I haven't actually mentioned YC. Our, our company was in Y Combinator over the last the summer 18 batch, and, and that was valuable to us because we come from a pretty heavy media background and getting some traditional Silicon Valley advice and, and balancing those two things can build pretty amazing brands that also scale. I think LA has a lot of potential in terms of the, the talent and the actual infrastructure that's growing and, and I'm pretty excited by a lot of the initiatives in terms of diversity and inclusion that are happening here, and I think they're a few steps ahead of some of the other big metro areas. So I think just as a whole, it's untapped just resource that I'm excited to be able to build up for, for the community. And the direct-to-fan monetization space in which you yeah. guys play seems to me to be becoming kind of increasingly crowded, right? How right. do you differentiate in this ever-changing yeah. landscape? I think on a similar note, we come from kind of the tech background. A lot of the direct-to-fan companies operate a bit more like agencies, and, and we're really taking a tech approach. So there's a lot of data and automation in the whole process. Creators love us because we give them a dashboard that shows all their sales, it shows what step in the pipeline their products are in, and, and just that information transparency is really important to creators who are trying to you know build and make use of all the analytics out there. And so I think coming from that angle has been most important to our creator relationships. What is something that you believe that everyone else might think is crazy? Hmm. The reason I ask this, give you a little bit of time to think about it, is I find that most entrepreneurs have to be a bit contrarian in their thinking. So what's something that maybe you apply in your business that the rest of the market doesn't realize or hasn't seen yet? From a business standpoint, at least personally, we follow, I, you, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote this. It was a great Medium article. I can look it up and send it to you later or something. But he talks about kind of living, living your, both your personal goals and your business goals, trying to emulate literally tech sprints in those things where you have some big broad goal, but you do a two-week sprint towards that, and then you find yourself in a new spot in this landscape, and then, you know, building and formulating a new sprint. And it's kind of... It, it helps you just make progress in each step. And that's, I think, in, in conflict with a little bit of how a lot of entrepreneurs build their business in terms of this big vision and breaking that down from top to bottom, whereas we do a tiny bit of big vision and, and building it up from bottom up. And so that's given us a lot of opportunities to find, you know, well, it's given us ways to find new opportunities. As far as kind of just my, my take on the industry, I spend a lot of time thinking about just this younger generation and Gen Z in general, and it's such a buzzword at this point. And I think 
a quote that I really like from my same friend Tiffany Zong who introduced me to Team 10. She always says that, that Gen Z doesn't have shorter attention spans. Uh, Gen Z just understands opportunity cost of content of the things they're doing. And so they don't get distracted by something new. They just realize that that, that has more value uh, than what they're working on. And so a few people have started to pick up on this. You get the Quibbies of the space. You get you know other short form companies. You get Network doing some QVC stuff. And I think we're really focusing on a lot of that, those shorter experiences, which still is in conflict with a lot of traditional media and even with you know YouTube's algorithms pushing you towards 10, 15 minute videos. I think just content around that, that Gen Z mindset is shorter, high impact. Still moving in that direction. Hmm, that's interesting. So you mentioned Quibi, which yep. is uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and, and Meg Whitman's yep. latest venture uh, out of WonderCow. And a lot of the business plan seems very similar to things we've seen before, right? Yeah. It feels like Go90 2.0. It feels like, you know, full screens SVOD service all over again. How are they going to convince Gen Z, or at least their parents, to open their wallets and spend however much, $2.99, $4.99, $9.99 a month to watch short form content? Even if it's premium, how do you pull attention spans away from free content on YouTube, other entertainment choices in the broader media landscape? How do you how do you make that work? Um, I think the problem is all the free content is hardly content anymore. And I think once you get them in with a free trial, they'll see the, the value difference. Once they get that first video, they'll see the value difference. I mean, I haven't seen Quibi content yet. No, nobody has, right? But when you watch vlogs, you hate about 60% of it. You like the 20% that's lifestyle and the 20% that's like a fun joke or whatever. Uh, but about 60% of it is effectively advertisements or filler to get to the 10-minute mark. And so I think it's just that same opportunity cost that's pretty innate in this generation is, is once they see this four-minute video that's just pure entertainment, I think they'll be able to upgrade and upsell into that, in that paid category. But it'll, it'll come around some, some pretty interesting, maybe even, you know, veering on content marketing type stuff around getting kids to, to at least experience that first first video. I think you're right. There's still a big gap between UGC content available for free mm -hmm. and then premium entertainment, right? And can you get premium entertainment at the price point that then makes it accessible yeah. for this younger generation? Well, That's you the, the challenge. Yeah, you see the YouTube sponsor program and you see the, the Patreon stuff. Obviously, there's market potential, I guess, for people to pay for this type of content. And I'm not sure that people are super satisfied with Patreon and YouTube premium content or sponsor YouTube sponsor content just because it's not a clear product offering Get my inside look or get my you know the extra video a week still doesn't quite clear up Kind of the, the value add and so I think what Quibi will be able to do is this is premium content that is in this category It's this genre with these awesome actors and creators and so I think really packaging it as a media play instead of kind of supporting and community-based, donation-based will be important for, for converting into that product, yeah. Very cool. What else is coming next? Do you have any other predictions for 2019? Oh, hopefully next year's Rewind is better. <laughs> yeah, so this year's YouTube Rewind, the second most uh, disliked video, most hated video on the internet I right now. I think it might be up to number one. Really? I, Surpassed the sure. Ghostbusters I, trailer? Maybe I'm wrong, uh -huh. but yeah, it was, it was getting up there. 
Uh, last time I checked, it was like eight million wow. dislikes, which is uh, pretty pretty sad. So the arguments <laughs> against the video, just for people who might not be aware, is that one, it's a bit inauthentic. It doesn't contain a lot of the most uh, popular YouTube yeah. personalities who might not be brand safe or you know the the type of image that YouTube always wants to portray. But but at the same time, they're extremely successful to these right. audiences on YouTube. What's your take on the whole situation? Why are people hating this video? What could YouTube have done, or what what should YouTube learn from this situation? There, there really is a sense of community celebration that happens in previous videos and memifying themselves when when creators are able to make fun of themselves in this video, but it's with everybody else. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's a bit of a meme, yes, and it's pretty up tempo, energetic, and so just the contrast there with lots of time talking. I, I, it's sad because they were good they were good topics. It was important stuff, but I think it just might not have been the right place for YouTube to, you know, it, it was a change that audiences weren't ready for. So I think next year they'll go back to more traditional music video laughing at each other and less Fortnite, hopefully. So. Mm -hmm. What do you make of uh, some of the, the crazes this year around Fortnite and the dance challenges? And is content strategy changing on these platforms? Are we seeing it bleed over to other platforms as well? Is it trickling past YouTube into Instagram and Facebook? What, what does the future hold for multi-platform content strategy for influencers? Yeah. Well, and then, then you get into also some of the like CGI influencer topics as well, because I think there's a lot of potential to build these mobile games with CGI influencers or cartoon influencers that also lend themselves to content online and, and some of that, what you were just talking about. I think there's going to be a little bit of shift in that direction. I'm not sure it's going to happen in 2019, maybe 20. I think there will be more CGI influencers being launched in the next year to kind of set the groundwork for that shift as well, though. I think in general, though, some of that multi-platform stuff there are just still some limitations that creators haven't been able to get around to make super successful campaigns uh, in that regard. And, and something that comes from literally YouTube and Instagram algorithms, whether they're real or not, the way it's affecting audience engagement, it does happen. I think we'll either have to see some new platforms help promote new types of content, or we're going to have to see some shifts in how the feeds are handled onto the other platforms. I think you're right. One of the biggest topics this year was the issue of creator burnout, right? And a lot of that is being driven by the need to produce content so frequently in order to stay relevant in the algorithms, right? If you are not uploading every day or pretty frequently every week, yeah. then you're going to fall out of favor. Your videos aren't going to get suggested. Your content's not going to pop up and discover, right? And that has a real impact on followers, viewership, and yeah. thus revenue. So creators uh, need to find, coming back to you know your mission yeah. behind Demeanor, they need these alternatives to stay relevant, to build a lasting brand and monetization yeah. channel beyond just their personality-driven content. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to continue to see these issues going into next year? Yeah, at least from our perspective. We're excited to launch a few you know, uh, big products to help a few people out early next year in this space. I think that some of the creator burnout stuff can't quite be fixed just because there's so much competition, not with them, not only with themselves, but also with each other. Although it's a community, at the end of the day, you're fighting for that trending page, right? And so just by nature of how it's all set up, I think there's going to be, there would have to be some pretty major changes before that would happen. And those might be a little bit too big for the community as a whole, audiences as a whole to handle at this point unless a new platform kind of came around and, and fixed it. But even in that case, it's a little bit dicey. I'm not sure if anyone could come and, and survive in the space just given you know the 
prevalence of YouTube and other platforms at this point. So good predictions. I like them. Everything from uh, YouTube rewinding, needing to get in touch with their creators and figure out what the community yeah. wants to more CGI influencers. And then hopefully some changes and better understanding around the platform algorithms and the types yeah. of content that they're they're recommending so that creators can find better yeah. balance in their lives and find these alternative approaches to building a business. What does the future hold for Demeanor? Yeah. Like I said, the beginning of the year is going to be a few larger launches for products that we're excited to share very soon. And we're also increasing the self-serve options on the platform so that smaller creators, you know, 500,000 followers and, and lower can come on and start to build some of these things on their own using our platform. Um, so we'll be opening that up at some point in probably Q1, Q2 of next year. And so that'll be really exciting as well. So in other words, you're building templates where they can create their own mobile game, their own website, some yeah. of these approaches to building products. Yeah. Along those lines. Cool. Stay tuned. <laughs> Look forward to that. One of the questions I ask everyone who comes on the show, given there are so many entrepreneurs and other startup enthusiasts that listen, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? I think I would stay away from, I think just because it's such a crowded space, some of the analytic plays and data plays might be a little bit too competitive for a brand new business at this point. And I would recommend trying to be somewhere, what's, what's the old adage though? Like, to conflict what I just said though, um, the old adage is build the shovel for the gold rush, not go look for gold or whatever whatever the, the quote is. Um, so I, I still think there's a lot of work to be done in creator tools in general. It's probably a little bit closer to the content side, uh, whether that's helping people edit or produce or finding you know topics and partnerships and collabs and stuff like that. I think there's space to build creator tools. Yeah, still some white space there it seems. I think the challenge becomes monetization, right? We've seen some breakout successes, some great examples of creator tools that have figured out the model, which tends to be kind of a freemium SaaS play where the price point can be low, but scales up and maybe there's an enterprise option. Uh, But others have kind of tried and failed in this space because, you know, creators can be reluctant to change, A, their habits, right? They're already very busy. They've got their platforms and their processes that they're used to. But B, a lot of creators just won't fork over any money because they're used to great free tools from Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. So if you're solving for that as a a new business, what do you recommend? How does someone kind of solve those challenges? You got to get an interaction that doesn't exist on other platforms, like a UX interaction, some pretty revolutionary way, whether it's to... Say we're talking creating videos and, and editing as a tool. You got to find some new mobile thing that makes creating and editing super easy, like never been done before, um, just to get people in the door. And then some long-lasting value around whether it's storing or, or transcoding or you know all that kind of stuff. I think there still is a lot of room to be done around mobile capture that could really entice creators. They still carry around vlog cameras, which are hardly better quality than my iPhone X, right? And and a lot of them use iPhone Xs, but it's still pretty clunky to record and edit and all that kind of stuff. So I think really it's it's just finding ways to consolidate work into the still mobile for creators is there's potential. Drake, where can people find out more about you and more yeah. about Demeanor? Demeanor.co. That's, that's where most information is. Uh, we're going to have some kind of PR type stuff happening in the next few weeks. So you can stay tuned for some articles and, uh, you know, socials as well. So Demeanor Co. on all platforms. Awesome. Well, Drake, thanks again for coming on the show. It's so cool yeah. to hear about your journey and the things that you're solving for in the creator space, right? Someone who is so close to working directly with social influencers, helping to solve some of these challenges as the, as the business changes so quickly. So thanks again for sharing your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was awesome. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.